We would like to welcome our listeners to the podcast series Who's Universal, a series adjacent to the White West Conference, which will take place in the 5th and 6th of March 2021. The conference is co-organized with Kader Atia and Ansam Franke, and my name is Anna Teixeira-Pinto. Our guest today is David Lloyd, Distinguished Professor of English at the University of California, Riverside. David Lloyd's most recent books are Beckett Singh, Theater and Painting, which came out with Edinburgh University Press in 2016, and, and the Representation, The Racial Regime of Aesthetics, which was published by Fordham University Press in 2018. We will be discussing universalism, modernity, and the function of aesthetics as a regulative discourse. Maybe we can start uh, discussing uh, your latest book, I believe, Under Representation. And uh, I mean, I would, I would be personally interested in this question of like how the static judgment is that institutes the separation between subject and object, which also somehow introduces this other backdoor separation between subject and subject, meaning like the subject that is capable of this kind of universal detached judgment and the subject that is incapable of this type of judgment, it's incapable of contemplation, collapses into the object, is somehow uh, always like too much, too needy, too covetous, too greedy. So yeah, I the only difference I would have with how you formulated it there is that I would want to say that it's not that there are subjects who are incapable of judgment, but that it is, at least in Kant's view, latent in every human subject, so that it actually writes into racial judgment the possibility of a development which actually makes the judgment of not having developed the capacity for aesthetic distanciation, for aesthetic contemplation, all the more harsh and makes the division between those subjects who are endowed with taste, who are endowed with the capacity for a contemplative relationship to the object, which is, as we know, entirely a matter of the disposition of the subject and not of a quality of the object, that subject then becomes all the more differentiated from the subject who has always yet to develop a capacity that eventually they must develop in order to be regarded as human. So that in a certain sense, the, the argument I'm trying to make in underrepresentation is that what the philosophy of the aesthetic deriving from Kant institutes is a much more rigorous differentiation of human beings along scales of development that really subordinates human difference to human identity, but along a scale, if you like, or a spectrum of developed capacity. And that that, that ruse, if you like, of the aesthetic is to make the aesthetic appear to be the domain of freedom, which is, of course, the regulative concept of all Kant's ethical thinking, the subject of freedom, but denies it then to a whole class of human subjects yet to be, so to speak. And I think that's that's this, the, this, the minor qualification that I want to make to, to, to how you just characterized um, the situation. Mm -hmm. But indeed, what it produces is a whole class of subjects who are subjected, 
um, subjected by their own desires, as their own needs, as you put it, their own inclinations, uh, to a state of nature, um, where nature drives, where the body drives, and that becomes, of course, for Kant, the pathological subject. And as you know, um, I try to make the connection between that subject in Kant and what Denise de Silva more critically understands as the affectable subject, which is really very much the same, the same concept. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, I, I was um, also wondering if one could tie this to, you know, like there is this classical justification for slavery that basically says that, uh, you know, it's not wrong to enslave those that are not able or that are not capable of freedom because they are already slaves in a way to their own nature or to nature at large, which is their nature because, of course, they are not uh, able to um, emancipate themselves. Which is indeed, you know, exactly what differentiates um, in Kant in particular, but also in Schiller and then moving on into the British 19th century, someone like John Stuart Mill, uh, what separates the condition of women as subjected subjects from that of the enslaved or indeed of, of the colonized in many situations, if, if not all, which is that women are not generally seen to be subject to coercion in quite the same way, to force. Whereas what differentiates the racialized subject is that in fact, the idea of development itself produces the idea that one can apply force to the subject because they are not yet ready for freedom. Mill will, will later talk about it as government by leading strings, which is a slightly more liberal uh, way of characterizing it, but basically meaning that, that the subject who is savage is subject to nature. The subject who is barbarian, as Schiller understands it, for example, is subject to the rule of law, the rule of might rather than, than, than um, law in, in, this, in the modern sense, but to laws that affect themselves through force. So that justification for the use of force against the, the savage, against the enslaved, against the colonized, is deeply rooted in, in the idea that they have actually got a human capacity to learn to enjoy freedom, but that in order to do so, they must first of all develop this sense of autonomy and freedom that have always been uh, characteristically associated with Western and European developments. So yeah, I think force is, is deeply inscribed underneath an aesthetic that regards itself as being the space of liberal contemplation. Yes, I, I was also like wondering if one could uh, tie this to more recent developments, for instance, like uh, this whole discussion about like culture and temperament and uh, uh, what type of cultures and temperaments are enabled to inhabit the space of like liberal subjectivity. And uh, for instance, how it plays out in, uh, I mean, I was thinking about the case of Charlie Hebdo and also like the publications of the Mohammed cartoons, uh, first in Denmark and the Chilean Post and but then like republished, of course. Uh, um, and, uh, and how this, uh, you know, like basically to be offended is the hallmark of this kind of pathological subject. I've recently been in conversation with the Pakistani feminist and intellectual Sajah Abbas, um, who has a book mm -hmm. called At Freedom's Limit. 
And one of the things that she's been emphasizing since in Pakistan, the whole question of blasphemy has been politicized, pitting the Sunni majority against the Shia and other like the Ahmadi uh, religious minorities. And the, um, the concept that is used to justify the antagonism and that stretches as far as, as imprisonment and sometimes death sentences is this notion of blasphemy. And it derives not from within Islam, but precisely from within British colonial law. So that it's British colonial law that invents the notion of injury to religious sensibility. That is the, the concept of offense that you're talking about. Precisely because the British wish to regulate the colony by dividing the population into its sects and into its religions, and in that way to kind of manage and control difference by subjecting it to a notion of the capacity for injury, which was projected onto the colonized, who in the past had, had not even had a concept for such a thing. So in a certain way, uh, it's quite interesting to see that these kinds of legal categories that are developed in the colonies transfer themselves to the what we might call the metropolis and become effective there. They, they have really taken over the discourse on the sensibility, if you like, of the Muslim population, other mm -hmm. populations. Uh, we, we have a version of that, of course, which is the notion of um, the the vulnerable subject of, of race who is always being injured by microaggressions and so forth. And of course the right wing scoff at this and, and see it as a kind of taking over of the university by sensitivity training and, and are completely in denial of it. And yet that category itself is one that develops from and is projected onto the racialized um, from the discourse of the aesthetic, the discourse of the ethical. Um, and then transfers back to them. The other thing I'd say is, is that um, this discourse on cultural assimilation, the idea that there are peoples who can and peoples who can't fully assimilate, that it is the duty of the immigrant or the refugee to assimilate to the culture. I mean, in my experience, that, that has been current um, certainly since I last lived uh, permanently in Europe, which was in the, in the 1980s, and I was living in Belgium, where I believe it was the Minister for Justice wrote a book called Mens Narmens, which was precisely <laughs> about this issue that the, um, the immigrant, if they were to become part of Belgian society, would have to assume Belgian norms and um, Belgian values in order really to become human, hence the Mens in the Mensch in the, in the title of this book. So I think very much so we are still dealing with the legacy of this determination of what it is to be human by separating it from the pathological or the affectable subject onto whom then all these pathologies in the rich sense of that word are projected. I'm bringing this up because uh, I think that uh, there is this uh, threshold that keeps, uh, you know, like it's a bit like the goalposts keep moving back and forth. Uh, when one enters this kind mm -hmm. of ambiguous space uh, in which people are, uh, you know, like offense is done, but then you are not to take offense, right? So it's a bit like right, uh, right. something is meant to be offensive, but if you respond, then of course uh, you uh, already uh, described yourself or somehow 
ascribe to yourself this condition of like uh, the pathological uh, being. Right, no, absolutely. I'm not familiar with Bateson's text, but I'm certainly familiar with this phenomenon, um, which is the phenomenon of the insult being delivered and then being told, oh, I didn't mean it. I did, you know, this was just a joke. Um, you shouldn't take things so seriously. Um, frankly, it was very familiar to anyone Irish living in England during the 1970s, but it's, it's very common now. The usual recourse of the person who, let's say unconsciously and not necessarily deliberately has said something offensive and their recourse having it pointed out to them is immediately to fall back on the idea that they didn't really mean it, which is for one thing very naive about psychology since Freud, but it's also um, a, a particular form of defensiveness um, that very rapidly gets taken up with a counter sense of offense. I mean, if if one reads the op-eds in the Wall Street Journal, which I like to keep tabs on these days, they are full of recrimination against the idea that to actually ask people to consider the racial legacy of this society, which frankly, historically and currently has formed it through and through, is to be asked to do something which is effectively punitive, which is offensive, and which mischaracterizes the good intents and moral feelings of white people. To the extent that, I don't know if you're aware, but Donald Trump has recently passed an executive order forbidding um, diversity training in yes. all federally funded institutions, um, which is an astonishing rant. I, I don't know if you've seen it, but it begins with the accusation that these forms of diversity training are racist, um, largely because they simply point out the facts of um, both US racial history and also the resulting white privilege. And that is seen as a terrible re reverse racism. It culminates quite chillingly with a demand that what be taught is the miracle of American history. So we really are dealing with a kind of fascist reinscription of the story of America as a story of a miraculous dispensation that's very, very close to manifest destiny. And it stems from precisely the kind of resentment that you're naming that articulates itself as no offense intended and projects on those against whom the offense has been delivered mm -hmm. an injury rather than an analysis. So if a black person says to a white person who has said something insensitive, don't you realize that's racist? They're accused of sensitivity, not of knowledge. And I think that's, that's a very important way in which these divisions are maintained that we've been talking about. Yes, and uh, that could perhaps uh, bring us to this question of like how racial animosity tends to always be expressed in this language of principle, right? As in, for instance, like how uh, anti-Semitism was uh, expressed uh, in this language of abstraction and uh, how now like, uh, you know, like anti-black racism is expressed in the language of individualism and uh, how basically you always find the terms that are familiar and compelling. Which is precisely what is denied um, 
by this notion of a peculiar racial sensitivity. But I wanna go back to this notion of abstraction um, precisely because I think that what becomes abstraction in Hegel is formalization in Kant. And in a certain respect, the racial judgment is articulated around the formalization of certain categories, which then can disavow their cultural specificity. So that a, a particular disposition of the subject that is really a disposition that is the ego ideal of a white cultural tradition of taste that, that really pre-exists anything that Kant wrote, um, but which is used as a, a, a measure of distinction of the, the person who is educated, the person who is landed, the person who is moneyed from those who lack taste. And of course, as you know, that, that discourse feeds into the German tradition through the periodical culture and so forth. But what I think the venture of post-colonial studies has been that has not perhaps fully been recognized is not just in its recognition of things like hybridity and ambivalence. It's not just in it's its effort to think about the persistence of colonial motifs in the contemporary world, but also in the more archival projects that have gone along with uh, the post-colonial theoretical work. And those archival projects have largely about, been about trying to reconstruct under and past the nationalist moment of decolonization, the kinds of social practices that always contained potential for other rationalities, other life forms and so forth. And I think the, the capacity to show, I'm thinking in part, for example, of Cedric Robinson's astonishing work in terms of order, where he, at the end of the chapter on anarchism towards the end of the book, really tries to imaginatively leap into the experience of the Tonga people of Africa whose society completely lacks the terms of authority and leadership that he's been analyzing in all these European social forms. And it provides a kind of a model that probably should have been much more productive if this book had been, been better known um, to post-colonial scholars. But, but that kind of understanding that there are social imaginaries that are like ecologies of potentials, um, that have persisted, that have not been eradicated, that have not been annihilated, that express themselves, for example, as, as Fred Moten's work is very uh, devoted to, in particular forms of social life that defy that level of abstraction and formalization that is required to produce political subjects or legal subjects and continue to persist and to reproduce themselves, even within the framework of societies that would see themselves to have become completely uh, given over to legal and political formality, so to speak. So I think those ventures within both the black radical tradition and black studies and within post-colonialism converge around this interest in really mapping and seeking to understand the alternative social imaginaries that still contain potentials for imagining our futures. Because of the, the weight of the understanding of the colonial past had always tended to be on what was destroyed. And I think across the broad spectrum of post-colonial black studies, indigenous studies, we are actually seeing a very different kind of perception 
not emphasizing what has been destroyed, but emphasizing the potentialities for other ways of living, thinking, organizing, and so forth. And that to me is, is really a very important aspect of this whole question of how we move from the idea that the liberal subject is a subject of formality or of abstraction to the notion that there is actually a full range and set of resources and potentials that are actually inscribed in what has been dismissed as the pathological subject. And that's, that is, a, you know, in, in recent work why I've taken such inspiration, both from Denisa De Silva and, and Fred Moten and, and other scholars uh, working in these areas. Mm -hmm. uh, I um, often think about like a comment that Denise makes and honestly I don't recall exactly where but um, uh, she says that uh, um, the emergence of post-colonial subjects was distorted into something like the death of the author in Europe and uh, uh, I often think about this in the sense that uh, uh, I wonder whether the moment that we are living through now, which is also like a moment in which a lot of like these white structures are coming under pressure, uh, is being distorted into another set of questions, uh, perhaps questions around post-human. I mean, I, I've watched similar distortions go on in the United States, for example, the, the appropriation of Foucault into new historicism that offered a logic, a very institutional logic, it must be said, which argued that everything that looks like resistance is always already contained, which was far from the thrust of Foucault's actual work, but which provided that kind of alibi. I think in particular that the work of Homi Baba was, I think I can say misappropriated um, within post-colonial studies in some versions um, to offer a similar way of thinking about the the post-colonial as simply the site of uh, ambivalence and hybridity where the Manichaean elements that Fanon was so keen to point out uh, no longer really came into play and it gave a more comfortable feeling that in fact one could transcend colonial difference and that in, in fact, we all live in this globalized hybrid society. There were versions of that kind of argument. On the other hand, I think what was extremely important in Baba's work was the way in which it intervened in a field that was at that point known as uh, colonial discourse, which had taken over to some extent from the earlier work of decolonization in people like Fanon and Memi and Cabral and others. And what it did was to um, allow one, in a sense, to take a perspective on nationalisms whose post-colonial endeavors could, at that point, be seen very clearly to have failed in particular respects. Not that that was any surprise, particularly, if one had read Wretched of the Earth, you knew that, you know, the the anti-colonial, the decolonizing moment would be quite likely to be followed by neo-colonialism. But it was more that, that um, in a certain sense, nationalism at that juncture had monopolized the field of the imaginary so that, that nationalism was the only way in which decolonizing projects could be imagined. By shaking the certainties of oppositional nationalist thinking, Baba opened the way to the kinds of projects that I'm talking about projects that could actually begin to review the past and 
move it away from a kind of teleology into the nation state and begin to understand the significance of social movements that at more or less the same time, perhaps a little earlier, the subaltern historians in India, for example, were, were beginning to, to tease out or um, there's some radical historians in the Philippines like Renaldo Cialeto, who was teasing out very similar uh, histories and practices in Philippine anti-colonialism. Well, one could multiply the examples, but, but you get what I'm talking about. So that I think, I think, yes, there has been a kind of appropriation of things like post-coloniality into a more comfortable rhetoric about colonialism. Um, but on the other hand, I think the gateway that it gave to different kinds of research projects, archival projects, political projects, was retains its importance. Looking forward, um, one thing that concerns me a little bit is that the discourse of precarity as a generalized um, situation of, of the modern subject under neoliberalism maybe hampering our analysis of the phenomenon of, of neoliberalism a little bit by erasing from the record the ways in which colonial modes of production actually in anticipated and indeed in certain respects materially prepared the way for neoliberal modes of production. And I think that if one looks carefully at, for example, Deepesh Chakravarti's early work on the formation of the uh, Bengali working class, or if one looks at um, Iwa Ong's work on factory work in the present, you can, you can begin to understand a very important pattern whereby colonial modes of production, which unlike what Gramsci was writing about in, in Americanism and Fordism, were not interested in the hegemonization of the working class. They were perfectly content to leave the working class with what they would have considered its backward and superstitious practices, which became integrated into the functioning of the factory, in fact. One could see actually the same thing going back in the sugar plantations of the Caribbean that, that uh, Sidney Minch writes about, where industrial production was in fact instituted. The word factory comes from, from those plantations. Um, Industrial production was instituted there, whereas the resistance of the enslaved was articulated in other imaginaries and, and other rhetorics than those of the liberal subject of freedom. So both, I think that, that we suffer from perhaps a generalization of the notion of precarity, not recognizing the way that what neoliberalism has laid hold of in terms of its labor forces are actually social formations that have a great variety and diversity of relations to what gets called precarity and an even greater uh, repertoire of relations to social imaginaries that defy the logic of neoliberal exploitation and social organization. So I, I think, I think that if you like, the analysis of, of the colonial past still has an important role to play, not so much in, in a kind of prehistorical sense, as in, as I said before, a sense of the repertoires of, of alternative potentials that continue to press um, for, for recognition. Uh, to return to the, these questions of epistemology, and um, because um, 
I often wonder, uh, you know, when it comes to the German Enlightenment, uh, whether this kind of like insistence on questions of truth does not already contain something that is structurally anti-Semitic in the sense of, of course, like uh, it's very much um, position itself against this kind of like play of play of interpretation, right? And uh, whether uh, this could also be extrapolated uh, to thinking how uh, other forms of rationalization could be uh, inscribed into this kind of like uh, conceptual structures or forms of conceptualization, which is something that you uh, approach in such a rich and dense manner uh, in underrepresentation that uh, I thought that it would be worth unpacking in greater detail. Well, I can I confess writing on the kinds of topics I was writing on, I hadn't thought of this in relation to anti-Semitism, um, though I think there's a, a much underread and very important book by J. Cameron Carter <clears throat> called Race, a Theological, in, a Theological Approach, I believe, um, in which he does a really wonderful job of analyzing the origins of anti-Semitism in medieval Christian theology and demonstrating the ways in which it undergirds a particular Kantian rhetoric of race that is inscribed mostly in the um, in the anthropological writings, um, and I I'm very indebted to to his thinking there. I think that it is perhaps in in terms of the resistance of a particularism, which of course is what Marx is grappling with in on the Jewish question, that the question of anti-Semitism really provides us with a genealogy of later forms like Islamophobia, anti-immigrant sentiment and so forth, because it is that anxiety that states that have formed themselves around an idea of the abstract political subject of the, you know, the, the Republican subject um, in its purely formal sense are, are most troubled by. And I think it's, it's something that perhaps stems from the German enlightenment, though I wouldn't like to place all the blame there. I mean, I think there are other discourses, oh, no, particularly no. the discourse of Republican, Republicanism uh, itself, which transformed, um, I think, from a discourse that would have allowed for a much greater degree of differentiation into one whose insistence on non-domination got recuperated by the sorts of state apparatuses that Foucault analyzes. Um, so, that, so that what... I think again, we come back to is the way in which the formalist element, both of aesthetic judgment and of epistemology and in particular of ethics is constantly haunted by precisely what it actually produces. So if I can take this to the this Kant's second critique, the pathological subject does not really pre-exist the subject of freedom, it is produced by it. Once you denominate a, a subject of freedom that is the categorical human, it is a logical necessity, a requirement that there be a pathological subject from which that subject is differentiated. The same could be very much said of, of the dialectic of the formal liberal subject 
and the particularist. In a certain sense, you know, if you go back to the German Enlightenment, the kind of broad strokes idea that, that there is Herder and there is Kant is like a caricature version of this, that, that there is Herder who believes in cultural difference and there is Kant who believes in the, in the ultimate trajectory of human freedom leading to uh, subjective uh, formal identity. That said, what we actually see mapped out over and over again is this anxiety about the non-assimilable, which the very desire to formalize will constantly produce. And what we have yet really to imagine is ways in which one could live in a society, in, in a collectivity, in which not abstraction and formality, but difference and particularism were understood to be constellations of relation that we could inhabit. It's hard for us to imagine that because we are so bound to what I try to analyze in, in underrepresentation as this narrative of representation. Very hard for us to think of ourselves autobiographically without the category of representation. Very difficult for us to even think of how we would organize politically without categories of representation. Although, you know, as in other work I've shown, um, that, uh, that sense of representation as a unified, if differ internally differentiated category, was not commonsensical to the British working classes in, in, the, 19, in the 1830s, for example. Um, they were able to see representation taking place in quite different and, and non-articulated ways. So, so there's a sense in which we can actually historicize our subordination to concepts of representation. We can therefore begin to see modes of relation in which representation is not the mediating force, but in which people are cap capable of improvising and inventing other modes of relating to one another that allow for difference and allow for particularism without trying to integrate them into a, a formal model of subjecthood to which they all aspire and, to, and through which they all meet which is, of course, the Kantian notion of common sense.